I hope over the last week you've been joining us in the invitation to be reading Luke and Acts together for the next six weeks. Uh, if you did, you've read uh, through about Luke chapter 9 in the last week. Uh, if you haven't, grab one of the bookmarks. We've got some here in the front row, some in the Welcome Center. Uh, pick up this week. You can catch up. You're, you're only a little bit behind. Um, if you're worried that it's too much to do two weeks in one, just start with tomorrow's reading as scheduled and go back and catch up with the other uh, later. Um, or you can just do two a day, two a day and, and get caught up that way. Um, and I really, as we're going through this series, there's so much to talk about when you start reading about Jesus. And, and really during the week, what, what you do in your reading at home is going to set the table for what we're able to do here on Sunday. Uh, if you're really in the Word and, and letting it kind of get you ready for Sundays, we're going to really be able to feast uh, as we talk about this as a community together. Uh, if not, you'll still, I think, get a lot out of it. But, boy, set the table during the week. Um, Luke and Acts, I, it's among my favorite books in the Bible. Two parts, really, of, of, of a one-part effort from Luke to write a letter to Theophilus. Um, and there's things you may not know about Luke and Acts. Uh, Luke is the longest gospel, but not only is it the longest gospel, uh, Luke is the longest book in all of the New Testament, longest book in the whole New Testament. The second longest book is, of course, Acts. Uh, together, uh, and this is another thing most people don't know, most people will say Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He didn't. Uh, in fact, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. Paul just used more letters to do it. Uh, Luke uh, has about 5,000 more words than Paul does in the New Testament, which means that Luke and Acts combined, uh, Luke's letters to Theophilus, uh, together make up 6% of your Bible. And so we just finished week one of the reading. If you did this week's reading, you read 1% of the Bible in the last week. Uh, and there's different ways to think about Luke and Acts. I think the way we normally think about them uh, is Luke is the good news of Jesus, and Acts tells us the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, you'll also sometimes hear Luke described as the coming of the King, and Acts as the coming of the Kingdom. Luke can be seen as the coming of Jesus uh, to this world and the inbreaking of Jesus into the creation, and Acts can be the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit into the creation. Uh, Luke tells the story of Jesus and his journey ultimately towards Jerusalem. Acts tells the story of the church from Jerusalem into all the world. All of these different ways to think about these two letters uh, that Luke describes as being written to his good friend Theophilus uh, so that you might have certainty about the things that you have heard. Uh, Luke's probably the only New Testament writer who never met Jesus. Uh, many of the others were apostles or disciples. Paul met him on the road to Damascus in a vision and, and referred to himself as an apostle by apostle come lately. Uh, so Paul had that relationship with Jesus, but Luke didn't. Luke receives all of his gospel in the story of Acts from interviewing witnesses and interviewing anyone he can. And, and Luke is a doctor, and he goes out and he finds anyone he can, and he meticulously studies the story of Jesus and the study of the apostles and the church, and he wants to know what's going on so that he can accurately and orderly give it to those who want to know the story. 
he's kind of a, an ancient historian. He's widely considered to be one of the greatest historians of the Roman era and of antiquity. And I, when I say that Luke is considered one of the greatest historians in the ancient world, I don't mean just by Christian scholars. I mean by historians, by uh, people that don't believe in God at all. They cannot deny the incredible historical effort that Luke puts into his gospel and into the, the book of Acts. Incredibly accurate. We know that among the witnesses and the sources that he had, that one of them was the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he has access to the Gospel of Mark. There's sections that, that come straight out of Mark and into Luke's Gospel. Um, and sometimes he makes them longer, sometimes he makes them shorter. And it's always interesting to try and figure out, Luke, why did you keep that and lose that? And uh, it, it makes for all kinds of interesting studies with Luke and Mark together. We're not going to do much of that in this series. Uh, but he does. He has Mark's Gospel. And that's important because when Mark writes his gospel, he's writing a book that's unlike any book that's ever been written before. Uh, there have been biographies in the ancient world. That's not new. Uh, stories that tell what people did. Uh, there have been books of religious teaching before the gospels that say here are, uh, are the teachings of, of someone. And you might read those teachings and decide whether or not to accept them or reject them. But the gospel is something else. The gospel that Mark writes when he sits down at that blank piece of papyrus, that scroll, and he starts writing this gospel for the first time is part biography and part history, and it's part teaching, and it's part telling you the content and the facts and the information of Jesus' ministry and everything that he did, but it's also seeking to do something else. It's seeking to instill faith in you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an evangelistic document. It is history, but it's history with a purpose. The gospel writers intend that once you read the story of everything that Jesus did, the explanation of where he came from, how he fits within the Old Testament pattern uh, and the promises of the Messiah to come, that once you understand the things he taught, the way he loved, the things he healed, and the way he, he performed all kinds of miracles and feats of power, that at the end of that you would respond by saying, not only do I think these things happened because they're accurate, but I believe they're true, and I believe that Jesus is God's Son, and He is the Messiah, and that produces a response in me, a response of faith. And that that response of faith isn't just to say that I mentally acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, which they hope you do, but that the, you will then begin to say, now how can I shape and model my life to be like this man? So when we read the stories of the Gospels, and, and, and Bible stories function this way in a number of levels, you're not just reading for content. I hope you get the content. You need the facts. You need the information. You have to put it in. But what makes the content powerful is that it's not just about what the Gospels say, but it's about what the Gospel is seeking to do in you. Luke doesn't just say, I want you to know this story so you can know that it happened that Mary was a virgin and she gave birth to this boy and she raised him to be the Son of God, the Messiah. That's true. You need that content. But what you also need to know is, Luke, why are you telling us? How do you hope that, that this affects us? How do you hope we understand what this means about Jesus and God and faith? And what does it mean for me? And, and so reading the Gospels is in many ways a greater challenge for shaping faith than reading Paul. Paul's a good preacher. 
And so when Paul wants you to do something, he says, here's what you should do, and here's why you should do it. Here's what failure looks like, and here's what success looks like. Don't fail. I mean, that's Paul. It's lots of instructions. Luke says, let me tell you the story of Jesus and invite you into a journey of following him and becoming his disciple for having read the words I'm, I'm writing, the story I'm telling. Gospel's a different thing. It's about what it does in us, forming faith, and guiding our lives. Uh, in the first nine chapters of Luke, then, the question isn't just what did it say, what did Luke tell us? The question is, what is Luke, what kind of faith is Luke trying to give to us? What does Luke want us to understand about who Jesus is and the kind of king that he is? And not only is he the king, but he's a certain kind of king, and he's not the king that anybody expects. And so as we get into these nine chapters that we're going to be kind of reviewing briefly today and thinking about what is he telling us and how should it shape us and transform us, the first thing that, that I want to kind of talk about is that, that Luke spends more time in the birth narratives of Jesus and John and in the prayers of Mary and, and Zechariah and the stories about, about the shepherds than any of the other gospel writers. Mark just drops us right into the adult ministry. Let's get to the point. I don't have much time. John starts with this great poem about the Word, the Logos, uh, how Jesus was the Word and He was with God in the beginning and created and transformed and shaped, and it's this, this powerful poem. Luke says, Let me, I've got to start with these stories. I need you to understand that Jesus was born. I need you to understand where He was born and who He was born to and the kind of challenge that, th that they had in this birth. And Luke tells us these stories, and you can't help but focus over and over again on just how human Jesus is. How just how human he is. And do you realize when in Luke's gospel that there's an incredible thing that's happening when the one who created more stars than we will ever be able to count now has to learn to count on his fingers and his toes, just the way you did. He's got to learn to count after making the stars. That the one who was there when God gave people legs to walk on has to now learn, this little baby boy, his mother Mary watching, to take his first steps. Sometimes we get this idea that Jesus was born with all of the godness fully formed in him that he had knowledge of everything in the moment of his birth, and that doesn't make sense. And to be completely honest, that sounds... Talking little children that know more than they should when they're really little are stars in horror movies, not the special on Jesus Christ. It's one of the real features of horror movies is that when you see a child that has adult-like secret knowledge, it's creepy. And if you imagine the little baby boy Jesus at age two, that his first words are, uh, Mother, I know what you've done and I forgive you in advance. <laughs> it's creepy. Jesus is human and he's a baby and he's a boy and he's a child. The one that who was the word that created all things had to learn his first word. And we don't know what it was. The one that, that the Torah is written about and that promised would come had to learn and study the Hebrew scriptures just like you do when you read the Old Testament. This is important. When Jesus read the Torah as a child at synagogue 
Sabbath school. There were times it surprised him. There were times that he read something and went, man, I didn't know that. He had to learn in the way you have to learn. There is not a, a seed of all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful knowledge that's planted in a toddler's body. There is throughout Jesus's, and we don't know the, the way and the how and the when is mysterious, and it's, it's not for us to know. We can ask him someday, hey, when did you know what you knew, and how did you learn it, and, and did, did your mom tell you about what the angel said, or did you learn in the scriptures and think, man, this sounds familiar, or, or did in your prayer life, did you have access to the Spirit in ways that we didn't? What, what was that like as you learned that you were special to God in a way that other people weren't? We don't know. We aren't given uh, the back behind the curtain scenes, uh, behind the scenes footage of what that looked like for Jesus, but he is learning, and he is growing, and he is human, He's a boy. And Luke gives us the story of Jesus going with his parents to the temple. And this really powerful moment where after three days of searching for him in the temple and they can't find him and they're starting to become worried. And they're so worried that when they finally find him, uh, they ask Jesus, how could you do this to us? He says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And even, we don't know if he's saying that like a good Jewish boy would, that he says, listen, God is my father, and this is where I want to be. I want to be having difficult conversations about the scriptures and what they mean and, and who I am and God is, and, and I'm figuring it out. Or if he knows in that moment, oh, you know, Joseph's my adopted dad. God is my father. I had to be here. I'm spending time with, with Abba, daddy, father. Yahweh's my dad. This is where I had to be. We don't, we don't know. It's this kind of murky thing, but it says that you know, Mary treasures these things in her hearts when she's taken him to the temple and he's, he's being named and the prophets are saying unbelievable things about him and he grows with wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. He's growing. He's learning. He's figuring things out. And all of this, his childhood, leads up to his baptism. Jesus in his early 30s comes to a place where, uh, where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And when he gets there, uh, he gets in line with the others. When it's his turn and John's preaching a message of repentance and baptism and forgiveness of sins. And he's preaching a message that calls people to be generous and kind. And Paul's, John is preaching that, that people need to change their ways and come back. Because one is coming who he's unworthy to untie the sandals of. And that one is in line, and he's preaching. And Jesus gets to the front, and John baptizes him. And John baptizes him, and Jesus is immersed under the water, and he comes out. And when he comes out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit in bodily form. And, and, and this is one of those times in the Gospels where you just want to tell Luke, uh, hey, Luke, could you do me a favor and explain what that means? And he says, I did. Bodily form. It was real. It was physical. Yeah, but what did it look like? I told you. Like a dove. And I just want to, you know, okay, yeah, but I need at least three more paragraphs here. What's going on? But we don't get that. What we get is heaven open up and a voice coming down, and the voice says this. You are my son, and with you I am pleased. You are my son. And with you, I am pleased. 
I want you to notice who is God speaking to? Is he talking to the crowd? If you're talking to the crowd, you say, this is my son. I want you to know I'm introducing him. This is my son. That's not what God says. God says, you are my son, and with you I am pleased. He's speaking to Jesus. And this, this moment, can you think back to times when your dad told you he was proud of you? Aren't those, aren't those meaningful moments when your dad, in a special moment, where, where your dad looks at you and says, I, son, I just want you to know. My daughter, I just want you to know. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with who you are and who you're becoming. And I just need you to know that. At Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water and he begins to pray and the voice says, you are my son and with you I am pleased. And, and I think... What's going on here? I mean, there's three different ways we can think about what it is that's happening in this moment where God is speaking to Jesus at his baptism. And the first one is this. When God says, you are my son, it could be information. That Jesus is going and just out of obedience to the message that he hears that John is preaching. That, that in some way this is information to him. You are my son. I think that one's unlikely. I think that Mary's probably told him, hey, there's things you need to know about, about the situation around your birth. Um, you've heard the rumors that you were born outside of wedlock, and there's more to it than that. An angel came to me. But Mary later seems confused about the calling of Jesus and the job description of Messiah, and so I don't know. It's possible that what's going on here is not information, uh, but that is, in fact, confirmation. That all the times that Jesus was there in the temple and with the other uh, teachers of the law and his, his Sabbath school teachers, that, that he's saying, man, I, what is this? Am I going the right way? Am I interpreting the scriptures correctly? Is this what God, my Father, wants? Am I the Son? Could this all be true? Is this, what, what's going on? And, and then in this incredible moment that after his baptism, that God says, what you have wondered and assumed and maybe considered is accurate. I want you to know, Jesus, my son, that you are my son, and I'm proud of you. Or is what's going on in this moment more than information and more than confirmation that what's going on is coronation? It's this moment that God is bestowing on his son a, a title and a, and a vision and a calling to be Messiah. That he's saying, look, you are my son. And as my son, you have the full weight and authority of the father. That those who see you see me. And, and in your ministry going forward, you must be my son. You don't get to be Jesus of Nazareth anymore. You are my son. You don't get to be the carpenter's son anymore. When you go back to Nazareth, you're going to have to tell him, I'm God's son. And his ministry begins. It's out of his baptism that Jesus fully launches into his ministry. But before he does, he goes into the wilderness to pray. And, and he goes, and, and as always, when Jesus has important things coming up, he spends time in the wilderness, and he spends time in the quiet and he spends time with his father, and he prepares himself spiritually uh, by, by practicing withdrawal, fasting, silence, prayer, preparation. And at the end of 40 days in the wilderness, the devil comes to him, and he gives him the temptations. And, and, and we tend to think of this as being uh, 
imagining ourselves in Jesus' shoes. But the temptations are not your temptations. The things that are tempting to me are not the same that are tempting uh, to you. The things that are tempting to you are not the same that are tempting to your kids. They're different. These temptations are specifically tailored to Jesus, the Son of God. Satan shows up. Luke 4, verse 3, the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. But I'll tell you, the food thing, I don't think is that big of a temptation for Jesus. What I think is the great temptation for Jesus is the beginning of the sentence, if you are the Son of God. The last time we were with Jesus, he was coming up out of the water, and God says, you are my Son. Forty days later, the devil says to him, yeah, prove it. Test him. See if he's given you power to turn this stone into bread and give you a snack to eat on. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. And so the devil leads him up to a high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. How many of you would would really, really want that. I mean, I want you to think about what's being offered to you. Do you right now want to be emperor over all of the, the problems and difficulty and strife that exist in some of the poor places of the world? Do you want to be the one who is in charge of uh, nations that are at war against one another? I'll give you all authority and power, all that you want. You will be the czar, the ruler, the king, the emperor, the grand poobah of all the world. Do you want it? Do you grab that scepter? I'll be honest. I don't. This is not my temptation. You get this much power, you're going to have a pretty busy day the next couple of weeks. You don't get to grab this scepter and watch Netflix anymore. This is not my temptation. This is Jesus' temptation. Why? Because what Satan is offering him in this moment is exactly why Jesus left heaven and became a baby. The baby who would get cuts and bruises and, and splinters the same way that you and I do. Jesus was with God in heaven, the very, in very nature God. And he left that and he became a baby born in a manger, fully human with all the junk that goes on in our lives. Like Lee was talking about earlier, the bad weeks, the, the pain that comes with being human, the tough stuff. Why did he do that? He did that so that he could come down to this world, not only save us, but eventually become the one who is the name above all names. Jesus came to earth to become the King of kings and Lord of lords. This temptation is his job description. The problem is that Satan says, I can give it to you right now the easy way. You just climb right to the top of the mountain. I'll give you everything you want. On this mountain, everyone will come and worship you as the one who is the great ruler of all. I know it's what you want, Jesus. You and I both know it's who you were created to be. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
says, yeah, that's where I'm headed, but I'm not going to do it, Satan, I'm not doing it your way. I'm not doing it the world's way. I'm going to do this God's way. I'm going to do this the way that God desires for me to do it. Not grabbing power, but constantly rejecting it so that I can become nothing, so that, that I can serve others and set an example for what kingdom people look like. That's what's at stake in this temptation. And the third one is like it. The devil leads him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this is not tempting to me. This would be the easiest temptation of my life. Uh, Satan says, please jump off of this high point and see if God catches you. No thanks. Um, you could barely talk me into jumping off of this podium, this stage right now. It's a long ways down and it might hurt my knees, okay? I watch kids do it and they're crazy. Uh, they're crazy. But you've got to remember that this temple is filled with people that are passionate Jewish believers in Yahweh. And they're coming to temple and they're praying, Yahweh, send Messiah. Yahweh, send your son. Yahweh, send the Savior. And let me tell you this right now, that if Jesus jumps off the top of that temple and the angels swoop down because he can command angel armies and they catch him right before he hits the ground and all of these Jews turn to Jesus and they see him right there with the angels holding him feet above the ground, you know what they do next? They make him king, and they call the armies. And the message is this, Messiah is here, and he's commanding the angel armies, and the time has come for the liberation of Israel. The king that is in the line of David has returned. And Jesus says, Satan, I'm not doing this your way. I am the Messiah, but I'm not your Messiah. I am God's Messiah. I'm the Messiah for all the nations, not just Israel. And he rejects God. Uh, he rejects Satan. He rejects the temptation, and he rejects the way of power, and he chooses the way of God. He pursues the way that God has set before him. The temptations are all about Jesus emptying himself to become uh, the example for us. You know, a way that, that I've been thinking about it this week, um, any of you have horseshoes? Horseshoes are a famous lucky charm. Uh, lucky charm. People have often hung horseshoes on their barns and on their houses uh, as a symbol of good luck. Symbol of good luck. And, and if you hang it on your barn, which way do you hang it? Do you hang it points down? Points up. Up to catch the blessings. Up to catch the luck. If you point it down, what happens? The luck pours out. The luck pours out. In the same way, the kingdom of God is, is like this, because here's the, the Roman way, the Satan way, the American way is this, that we start out life down here at the bottom. We're a little baby. We need everyone to put food in our mouths. And then over time, we build our own empire, our own kingdom, our career, our family, our goals. We become our maximum best person. We build our wealth and, and our self into what we hope that we can be. And, and at some point, we know that you go over the hill and once you're over the hill, you start losing your money, your health, your wealth, your hair. Uh, 
until it ends. That's, that's the American way, right? Over the hill. Over the hill. Jeff started that slope this week. Yay! I, I love that we start a young adults class and put our most newly uh, entered member of the Over the Hill Club in charge of it. But, you know, uh, as he pointed out this week, he's you know, better looking and more successful than any other point in his life. So watch out for tomorrow. Um, that's the American way. But the Jesus way is different. The Jesus way is about blessing. It's about holding things in. The Jesus way is that God, who in his very nature, Jesus in his very nature, God, leaves heaven, becoming a human, coming down and being obedient even to death on a cross, completely emptying himself, not considering equality with God something to be grasped. And that only when he's obedient even to death on a cross does God start lifting him up. Does God start exalting his name above all other names? Does God start making sure that, that at the end of time, that, that in front of Jesus, every knee shall bow? The Jesus way is the absolute inverse of the way that America always thinks about what success looks like, what the good life looks like. The Jesus way is you start with whatever God has given you and you empty yourself for the sake of others, for the sake of God, for the sake of his kingdom. And you don't worry about what's going to happen because you have confidence that God will lift you up. That you don't have to build yourself up. You don't need other people to build you up. God will exalt you. Because he did it in Jesus. The, the Jesus story, and it's, it's in Philippians 2 is the text that we've been looking at uh, in the back as we've been talking about this. It's this hymn that the early Christians would sing. And they would sing it and they would remember Jesus was with God and he became nothing. Even sacrificing his life on a cross so that, that, that we could know him. But God exalts him. God lifts him up. And it ends by saying that now that Jesus is the name above all names and in front of him every knee shall bow, it's done to the glory of God, not his own glory. And that's what we're invited into. Because remember, when it comes to the content of gospel, we've got to look first at what it says and second at what it looks, uh, what it's doing for us. How do these stories shape us and transform us? How do these things become uh, instruction for us? Well, Jesus gives teaching in the chapters we've read this week on this as well. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 31. We often go to the Sermon on the Mount, which is very similar to this sermon. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them to do to you. Go this way. Go this way. Go this way. Well, I want to keep my clothes. In fact, I want a nicer wardrobe. That's this way. Give stuff away. But, but I want to, to have people respect me and treat me well. That's this kingdom. 
The Jesus kingdom is if they hit you in the cheek, turn to them the other. But why? Won't this result in me just suffering? Verse 35 says this. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Because you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. If you do like God does, you will empty yourself and God will lift you up. Stop building your mountain and empty yourself so that God can lift you up. In Luke 9, which is yesterday's reading, or the last reading in, in the plan, however it fell for you, Jesus asked the apostles, he says, people say I'm all kinds of things, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And when he asked that question, Peter says, God's Messiah. I believe that you are God's Messiah. Jesus tells him, yeah, I am God's Messiah, and it's not what you think it is. I'm not the kind of king that builds his kingdom and then dies and leaves it to someone else and it weathers away. That's the Roman kingdom. That's the American way. That's, Satan, that's what Satan offered me on the wilderness. And I reject it. I am God's Messiah, but let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. And here's the good news. After I go to the pit, I'm going to be resurrected. going to be resurrected. And it's not just the content, it's what it means for me and my faith in my life. So Jesus says to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very Self. Here's what he says. You want the whole world? You can get it. But when you end, you'll have nothing. But if you want to lose yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you may feel like you're losing everything, but I promise you this, your reward will be great. Because God's got more in store for you at the end than you can ever imagine. And he starts to bring those gifts into the present. And he starts to bring it into the now. Jesus leaves heaven to be a baby in a manger who has to learn everything just like we did. It is temptation. Satan wants him to reclaim everything he lost in that move in one moment. Jesus, you gave up power to become a baby, to become a human. Take back the power. You gave up honor and glory to come down here and live among these people. Reclaim the honor and glory. And Jesus says, I'm going to, but I'm not doing it your way. I reject that way. I'm doing it God's way. And he empties himself, becoming obedient even to the cross as an example of how we do that every day. What does it look like? Turning the other cheek, giving to those who ask, loving your enemies, denying yourself, taking up your cross, lose your life to save it. Why? Because Jesus did it first to teach us how to do it next. Because if you love your enemies, your reward will be great because you will be children of the Most High. That's the gospel. 
gospel's right there. He doesn't stop there because, like I said, Luke's writing more of the New Testament than anybody else is. The gospel's right there. If you will just be like Jesus and give up everything for the sake of the kingdom, then you will receive your reward. Are you a child of God and part of Jesus' kingdom? Or are you still trying the American way, the Roman way, Satan's way? building yourself up so that your name can be great, be great because you can't do it. But if you will allow God's name to become great and you to become nothing, to empty yourself out, to let other people be first, their way, not your way, the Jesus way, then your reward will be great. And if you've never made that decision to be the child of God, who's going to let him pay the reward and not try and chase it yourself, if you've never made that commitment or if you're just struggling in your pursuit of it, just come forward this morning as we stand and sing.